At 12 years old, I ignored the unease that surged through me. I could not face how much it bothered me to lose my mom's name on my birth document. It's only a piece of paper. It really doesn't matter, Tim and I said to each other afterward when we were alone, rationalizing. Hello, I am Michelle Rado, and this is Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their own true stories of personal daring and then talk about it. I never did see nothing like that. I never did dream nothing like that. Today, we'll be hearing from writer Peg Conway as she reads from her brand new book just out in November 2021 called The Art of Reassembly, a memoir of early mother loss and after grief. And it's made me think about some big questions. Is there any yearning in our souls as strong or as primal as the one we have for our mother? And also, can children, especially really young children, ever really make choices? When Peg was seven, her mother died of breast cancer. There was obviously no choice in that tragedy. But there were some illusions of choice, I think, that she writes about that she'll share today. But it also reminded me of another child who had a terribly cruel choice put to him when he was only five. And that's John Lennon, placed between his mom and his dad, each of them willing to go along with whatever this little five-year-old decided. That floors me the older I get and realize, whoa, obviously there were many other tragedies that scarred him through his youth and that we heard him play out and deal with emotionally in his music much later in life, but man, what kind of choice is that to present to a five-year-old? I don't want to say too much more about Peg's story before we get into it, but suffice it to say she has ridden many emotional waves from losing her mom so early. She has gained great wisdom from it, I will say, and has learned to both ride those feelings and also harness them. And we are certainly the beneficiaries of that wisdom. This book itself also took sort of a winding road to now be available to the world. So with that, here is our conversation. It's so exciting to have met you when we were working on our publicity platforms and to have carried through the time when your book is coming out. I'm grateful to you for saying that. I feel the same. I think it demystifies being an author. Like I'm just a person like everybody else. And I've, Mm. I've witnessed (laughs) other writers in that same way, like that I'm in sort of Facebook groups with or whatever. I watch them, Mm -hmm. they've submitted or it's coming out and then they start telling people about it. Then they have some events about it. Like this is not some deep, dark secret that only special people can access. Right. This is just what you do. You, you put your story out there and then you start telling people about it. Yeah. To continue the metaphor forward, the like feet on the ground opinion about that, like the attitude of this is just what we're doing and you have a great book and it's coming out and we want to let everybody know about it. I was thinking authors are people too. We're just people. (laughs) Because I was listening to this podcast that I just discovered called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It's Oh, yes. That's a famous one. Yes. And I was thrilled to discover it. I think I might not have clicked on it since I'm not a mom, but I have so enjoyed it. And Zibby Owens, who is the host of it, she was saying to one of her guests, you know, I think authors are just rock stars. And I think for those of us who write, we do think that way. It's like, oh, my God, I'm going to be talking with this author. And um, and sometimes it can put distance between us when really it should not be doing that. That's right. That's we've, right. We've developed the rapport that allows us to get to know each other better first. So you are both 
a friend and a rock star. Oh, <laughs> well, you are book. a definite rock star oh. with your storytelling and sound specialties. Those make stories shine. Thank you. I, I love doing it. I'm excited to talk with you today. I will introduce to our listeners that I'm talking with Peg Conway, whose new book is called The Art of Reassembly. And it is exciting just to say that and to have you here. So we're going to talk about writing and we're going to hear you read a few chapters, two chapters from the book. And then we'll talk about the book afterwards. But one of the questions to get us into the writing by way of introducing you is I know that you were a journalist before you were a writer, before you wrote this memoir. And I'm wondering what what was the connection, actually even still thinking of like that whole rock star thing, I think for many of us who are writing and are really working hard to put our book out into the world, we think that being an author is something other than who we are. But you were a writer first and by way of being a journalist. So maybe can you tell me a little bit about how you got into writing overall, how you got into being a journalist? Sure. Um, I didn't really think about writing as anything distinct, I guess, Mm -hmm. when I was young until I was maybe in college. And then there was the opportunity you know, I had to choose a major and I ended up choosing English. And then I eventually got involved in the student newspaper and I was editor in chief mm. during my senior year. And that's what got me wanting to, that's where I got into journalism. Mm-hmm. So I got a graduate degree at Northwestern following undergrad. And really, it was not ever a perfect fit because I concluded by the end of the program that, you know, Daily journalism is probably not the right thing for me. I'm not aggressive enough. It's a grind. Yeah. I'm not hard-hitting enough. I love writing. I love communicating. I love talking to people. So through connections, you know, just networking, I began working at a consulting firm. And it was an inter- it is an international consulting firm. And I was in the communication practice working on employee communication materials around pay and benefits. So it was kind of technical writing. Mm -hmm. But there was client interaction and teamwork. And it was very rewarding. I really had a a knack for translating technical material into everyday language. And I had some great mentors Mm. that really helped me boil down things into their essence Mm -hmm. um, without extraneous wording and detail and such. So then I was a mom, I became a mom and I mm-hmm. left the workforce full time and did lots of other things in the community with, you know, I was a childbirth educator and I was a, a doula and I got oh. was involved in all sorts of community organizations. And uh-huh. then I started writing again. I did some freelance writing. I did some part-time work for former clients of the firm where I worked. And then I, I, I had this whole epiphany about childbirth and spirituality. And I, then I started writing about that. I got very jazzed about that for a long time. Mm-hmm. And that, then I was writing and then the internet exploded and mm-hmm. I could start a blog and be a writer. Ah. Then I really started identifying or wanting to identify as a writer when my kids were like leaving high school and going away to college. And I thought, I have time for this now. And if I don't do it now, when am I ever going to do it? Right. And so that's that's really how it came about. So there was that shift then where there was a difference between these are jobs I am doing writing but sort of transitioning into, I could be a writer. Is that right? Yes. And this work particularly is, of course, it's so personal, whereas it's very easy for me to write things for other people that are not personal, you know, like reports or mm-hmm. communication materials in my in my village here for a while I worked on the the newsletter you know those kinds of little mm-hmm. I think of them as sort of external community mm-hmm. writing whereas this right. is very internal right and I didn't really know how to write a memoir I, I kind of looking back realized boy it was really audacious of me to just think I knew how to do this mm-hmm. um Nobody but knows how to until they do it, though, right? Right. And it's all, I think it's all been very spiraling. Like, it all starts with open-ended writing, and then, hmm, maybe there's something here. I'm going to keep looking at this. And and then it keeps going. And then, 
you kind of think you want to put it all together and then you realize it needs a structure and, oh, I need help with that. You know, it kind of one thing led to another. Mm-hmm. So before I ask about this book, I was going to say, it kind of doesn't surprise me that even in high school, you if you worked for your paper, you ended up as the editor-in-chief because you do have sort of a take charge. I'm kind of, I'm a little bossy. I'm a leader, as we say. Yes. I'm not bossy. Not I'm a bossy, leader. a leader, exactly. So how did this book come to be? Well, it really, it's funny to look back now. It really came about after I saw the movie Wild, oh. uh, the, the movie of Cheryl Strayed's book. I hadn't read the book at that point. Yeah. And... I, we went to see the movie. My husband and I often go to a movie on New Year's Eve. And so we saw the movie. I think it was at the mm. end of 2014. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's about a hike. This will be interesting. Well, quickly, this is about a woman who lost her mother. This is right. a motherless daughter story. Yeah. And I got me thinking, hmm, maybe I, do I have something to say about this? I I never thought I did. Mm-hmm. And then I started experimenting with writing about it, writing about certain moments. You know, I I would take online writing classes or join online writing groups and put out a few things and then mm, see where it went. And then I had a series of, like, editors and coaches who helped me get it from this very nascent idea to a book. Mm -hmm. Well, I love that. Cheryl Strayed was your inspiration because I I think that there's often that moment with people who we read, either readers or, as you say, there was a movie, um, you go out there into the world and you see other people's stories. And for me, at least, it makes me realize, oh, my story is kind of like this except it's different in X, Y, and Z ways. And that can often be the moment that you go, wait a minute, maybe I do have something to say. Right, right. And what also the nature of this story, its content, it came out of me very gradually over a series of years, as you are aware from mm-hmm. reading my prior work, that my mom died when I was very young, and then there was not a lot of there was little or no emotional processing for quite a few years. And then in young adulthood, it it came out. And I think Mm. the the writing at that stage, I was in my late 40s when I started writing, or early 50s. And I think that was a natural progression of, okay, I'm getting more, I'm ready to, to see what this is. Yeah. And I mean, you were so young, you were only seven. I'm, I'm not sure we can ever do any emotional processing of things that happen in our childhood till we're older anyways. So. Well, children, uh, children do grieve though. There are things we we didn't know this when I was a child, but uh now we know that children do grieve and there are things you can do to support them at their developmental stage. But you are also correct that an early loss like that, even in the best of scenarios with the most supportive present help, down the line, there's going to be re-examination of it. That's just the nature of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because if you lose your mom when you're seven, when you're 25, you realize that loss in a different way. Like yes. when you get married or you have a child, it's almost like the parent dies all over again because they're right. not there for that moment. And now you're a different person realizing, okay, now I'm a young mom without a mother. Before I was just yeah. a college student without a mother. Right. You know, it's yeah. that, that's just how it is. Yeah, and I think that's a big part of what your book is about is you your subtitle, as I look at it here, Mother Loss and After Grief. It's the grief keeps happening to us over and over again in different ways. That's right. And that comes from Hope Edelman's book that came out almost a year ago. And I have a quote from her in the very opening of the book. The after grief is where we learn to live with a central paradox of bereavement, that a loss can recede in time, yet remain so exquisitely present. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true for so many things. It's an interesting way to think about grief. So before we kind of set up the chapters that you're going to read today, I have one more question about writing, which is one that I'm trying to always answer myself, which is, why do you write? Oh, my goodness. I write because it helps me understand myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's whether that's even just writing in a journal 
on a regular basis or actually crafting something into a narrative for public consumption, whether as an essay or a book, it then lives outside of me. It helps me, it helps me process things to come mm. to some catharsis or not always even under some new understanding, but some peace, some acceptance, some understanding, depending whatever, whatever it's about. Yeah. Do you sort of distinguish those different types of writing that you just listed, like starting from journal to like book or other things? I, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I categorize those types of writings in different ways. I think of them as different stages of writing. They're mm. neither good nor bad. It's just that something that that begins as jottings in a journal, at that point, it's not anything other than jottings in a journal, but it could be the kernel of an essay. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the thing, I, the biggest thing I learned in the course of writing this memoir is, you know, the difference between writing for myself and writing a narrative for readers. Yes. There's a definite process there of constructing a narrative that makes sense to the reader that and you know some of that comes by journalism training comes back they need to know who all the people are and they need yeah. to have the details arranged logically in fact I, I had a spell during my memoir writing where I really questioned I, I put the project on pause because I I could see that it what I had was not a narrative for readers mm -hmm. but I wasn't sure I wanted or needed to take it the next step. I, I thought, I need to think about this. Maybe maybe it's enough that I wrote all this out for myself and I've come to some new self-understanding. Yeah. That could be enough. Was that a scary thought for you? Can I? <laughs> um, a little. It was a little discouraging, but at the yes. same time, it felt, you know, a lot of my work is about being honest. And yeah. so I was being on. When I'm honest with myself, I feel better, even if it's an unwelcome insight. Mm -hmm. The on it, that the self realization that I do not have to do this. I do not have to push myself. Pushing myself is not going to be useful. Let it just let it go for a little while and see what happens. And and then I came back to it because it kind of started like nagging at me. Like I felt unfinished about it. And I thought, let me look at this again and see where I'm at. And by then, like four or five months had gone by, and I had I had a very different perspective. I had a very different perspective. Yeah, well, it is like layers. And I I like hearing that so much because I'll say I relate to that process very much myself. I keep a journal. I write things there. I might go back and refer to it at times. And then there is, there's sometimes there's just like this little kernel of like, oh, this could be something else. And so that's what you put into the thing that's going to be the next stage. And I will also say in working on a memoir myself that I said to myself at one point, why am I doing this? Like, what am I... <laughs> <laughs> That's why I ask, like, why do you write? And and I do think it's a scary question to say, well, I thought, you know, then you declare to our our group and people, like, I'm going to write a memoir. And then it's like, well, what if I only need to write this for me? What if I don't need to put it out there? So I relate to all of those stages. Well, at every stage is a decision point, And you don't have to do what you don't want to do. Yeah. And that's that. But you're right, coming to that place where you can give yourself permission to say, oh, I don't want to take this any further, Yeah, is a, is a powerful place. Well, and I will say that's, uh, that's part of my journey, is, <laughs> is reminding me to, that I can say to myself, I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. I, that's a tough one for me. But we're not talking about me. <laughs> I will switch back to you, because... We're going to hear from a couple of the chapters, and, and I, I feel like all this wisdom is just what I admire so much about this whole book is the emotional curiosity that you continually take with yourself to pause and say, wait, what's going on here? So that I think is, I, I love that. It's very helpful for me to read that on the other side of the book from from where you have written so I'm going to set up just a little bit because you're going to read from chapters six and seven in the book, which is early on in the book. It's not even halfway through. 
you are 12 years old. Um, as we have said, your mom died when you were seven. And make sure I get this right. I think so. You have an older brother and sister and a younger brother. That is correct. That is correct. And when you were 12, your dad remarried. Actually, I was 11. But 11. That's okay. Not. And then a year later, they had another child, a baby boy. Okay. So with that, I will introduce Peg Conway reading from The Art of Reassembly. On Easter afternoon, about three months following our move, as we sat around the table after brunch, an upbeat dad glanced around and then announced, we're going to have an addition to the family. A dog, I blurted, but no, he meant a baby, due in late August. Mark Edward Morse arrived in the early morning of September 1st, 1975, at 7 pounds, 5 ounces, and 21 inches long. It was a cesarean birth, which at the time meant a hospital stay of eight days. The afternoon of their homecoming, my younger brother Tim and I walked back from school together, coaching each other and resolving, just say how cute he is, no matter what he looks like. We had little prior exposure to babies, but had heard that newborns could have misshapen heads or red faces. In fact, I exclaimed, oh, he looks so sweet, in spontaneous, sincere amazement when I saw Mark for the first time, lying on his back in the porta crib He looked perfect and precious, with even-toned light pink skin, a symmetrically round face with cheeks that were full but not chubby, just the right amount of brown hair, neither bald nor bushy, and dark eyes. The dining room served as baby central for the first few weeks. The porta crib stood against the wall to the right of the front bay window, and the table served as the dressing and changing area. As she did with everything, my stepmother, Aggie, took an organized approach and was matter-of-fact and deliberate about Mark's care. I watched her bathe him for the first time in the kitchen. She narrated every step aloud, quoting instructions received at the hospital. After setting up all the necessary supplies, she laid him on a padded area of folded towels next to the sink, keeping him covered except for the area she was bathing so he didn't get cold. She wiped his eyes with a damp cotton ball, used a small washcloth to be sure water and suds got into the folds of his neck, and dipped a Q-tip in alcohol to clean the cord area. Mark was an easygoing baby who tolerated all of this without fussing, gazing at the light above the sink. I stood by, eagerly soaking it all in. I never actually bathed him myself when he was tiny, but soon I learned to give him bottles. Every other day or so, Aggie boiled all the feeding paraphernalia, then poured formula into the bottles and put them in the refrigerator. She used the microwave to carefully heat them up before feeding. She demonstrated and explained how to fit the nipple into the top ring and screw it on the bottle, and then how to sprinkle a little milk on my forearm to test the warmth. The usual feeding spot was in the living room, in the chair and ottoman by the bookshelf. After Mark drank about two ounces, it was time to try burping. Rather than putting him over her shoulder, Aggie espoused the less common method of sitting the baby up in your lap, leaned a bit forward so that your hand under his chin with the towel to catch any spit up also helped support him, and your other hand in back, partially in support but also patting his back to elicit the burp. Mark was about eight weeks old the first time I babysat him on my own on a Saturday evening while Aggie and Dad went out to dinner with friends. By then, rice cereal had been added to his nine o'clock feeding. I followed what I had been shown and taught, getting the bottle heated and mixing the cereal while Mark sat perched in his little baby seat. I had changed his diaper and dressed him in a sleeper already so I could put him in the crib right after. With the lights dimmed as an encouragement toward sleep, I picked him up and sat with his head in the crook of my left arm and managed the feeding and bottle with my right. I remember feeling a little nervous at the weight of responsibility for this little person, but once into it, found it fun, like having a live doll. I loved holding Mark. Evenings, I often walked around the living room with him on my shoulder after dinner while Aggie cleaned up the kitchen, lulling him to sleep if he was fussy. The baby smell and the weighted warmth of his little body against mine with his head snuggled up to my neck intoxicated me. An attraction made even more irresistible a few months later when he visibly responded to my presence, smiling in recognition and waving his arms and legs when I came in to pick him up out of the crib after a nap. 
One Saturday afternoon, while Mark was asleep upstairs in his crib, out of the blue, as usual, my dad and Aggie called Tim and me down to the living room for a startling conversation. Dad spoke for them both. Ag wants to adopt you kids. That way, she'll be your legal mother, so if anything ever happened to me, there would be no question of who would take care of you. She would be your mother, and you'd stay together. Tim and I looked back at him without speaking. She would adopt my sister Kate, Tim, and me, but our older brother Mike did not qualify because he was already past age 18. The court system would process it, of course, and a social worker would be coming next week to talk to us and ask us if this was okay. So you'll say yes, right? His voice went higher, though it was not a question. We nodded the expected response. Oh, something else. She'll explain that your birth certificate will be changed to say that Agnes Cook is your mother, Dad added smoothly, trying to sound casual. Aggie was next to him on the couch, while Tim and I sat on the love seat to their right. She smiled wide, her eyes bright, and her head leaning to one side. At 12 years old, I ignored the unease that surged through me. I could not face how much it bothered me to lose my mom's name on my birth document and that Mike was not included. His birth certificate would stay the same and he would not be part of this new story. Clearly my dad and Aggie wanted the adoption and the carrot they dangled of having an actual mother again, if only on paper, seemed to fulfill my deepest desire. Having lost a parent to death already, the offer of firm protection should the unthinkable happen to my dad naturally touched a nerve. It's only a piece of paper. It really doesn't matter, Tim and I said to each other afterward when we were alone, rationalizing. The adoption became final in December 1975, and the following spring on Mother's Day, the final piece was fitted into place. After church and breakfast, we presented Aggie with pots of geraniums for the garden beds flanking the front door. They were not a surprise gift, but she smiled and thanked us warmly. These are beautiful and will brighten up the yard so nicely. Then, with sudden uncharacteristic shyness, more softly, Aggie said, I was wondering, I'd like to ask you to call me mom. Tim and I said nothing at first, taken aback. Simultaneous disquiet and thrill shivered through me. Gaining purpose, she continued, I am legally your mother now, and Mark, of course, will call me that, and I think it would be nice for all of you to call me the same thing. She paused, then concluded with, I would like it if you called me mom. Since that horrible November morning, more than five years earlier, we had only reluctantly spoken the word mom, when absolutely necessary, and then in a hushed tone of reverence. Could I call someone different by the sacred title? Allow it to become once again a common, everyday term? But the responsible girl that I was understood her duty. Nodding, I said, oh, okay, yes. It was awkward at first to switch from calling her Aggie to mom. I had to think about it. But it made things easier in some ways, too, like out in public or at school, where every other kid addressed their parents as mom and dad. Later, she gave me a small white box tied with a red ribbon. Inside, I discovered a tiny heart-shaped charm with a pink rose painted on it, hanging on a delicate gold chain. The accompanying gift note in her neat, even script explained that she had received the charm at her baptism, and it concluded with, I'm so happy to have a daughter like you to give this to. Love, Mom. Now I exhaled and stepped into my new role as Ag's daughter. Thank you. It's so pretty, I said, smiling. From my room, I could hear Mom down the hall opening and closing drawers in her and Dad's bedroom as she put away clean laundry. In a surprisingly short time, it had become second nature to call her Mom instead of Aggie. Repeated daily use of the once-revered title had dulled the resonance of loss and created the image, internal and external, of being an ordinary teenager. Sighing in trepidation, I picked up the little flyer and went to her bedroom. Could you go over this with me now? I spoke softly to Mom because Mark was asleep in the room across the hall. My face felt hot as I gestured with the folded paper that she had given me from a box of Tampax tampons the day before. Oh, okay, might as well, she said. The practicalities of menstruation had arisen quite early in our relationship when my first period occurred just two months after the wedding, before we moved. My aunt had already given me some explanation, plus my sister is older than I am, so it wasn't totally unknown. 
I certainly wasn't going to consult my dad, so approaching Aggie that Friday evening in January seemed easy by comparison. She took the news in stride, found some pads somewhere, and it was fine. I felt kind of proud. The next day, the bleeding became heavy and clotted, and I curled up on my bed in mounting pain and fear of what my female future entailed. Half-consciously, I left my bedroom door wide open in hopes that Aggie would notice, and she did. Peering in a bit later, she asked, Oh, are you having cramps? Take some aspirin. I should have told you to do that, she said, sounding apologetic. That was during sixth grade. At the time, Aggie had said I could use tampons when I got older, that they were a lot more convenient. Now, 18 months later, living in a new neighborhood where we had just gained membership to the swim club, I wanted to hang out at the pool at every time of the month. Reading over the directions and studying the diagram in advance of this one-on-one -on -one lesson only heightened my anxiety. How in the world could this work? How embarrassing would this conversation be? We moved to the tiny master bathroom, me standing in the doorway as she read aloud from the directions. Then she deftly pulled the string to open the individually wrapped tampon and explained how it pushed through the applicator. My eyes widened as she hoisted her right leg up on the closed toilet, a possible position offered in the package circular, and mimed its insertion. Remember to aim it towards your low back and push it in that direction. It's not straight upward. If you can stay relaxed, that will help, she said. Turning to face me again, she asked if I had any questions. No, I don't think so, I said, my mind spinning with the details, but starting to calm as she continued to be matter-of-fact. I'd suggest putting some Vaseline on the outside of the applicator to help it go in more easily at first to get used to it. It's just going to take some practice, she concluded. She handed me a turquoise blue Tampax box of my own to put in the other bathroom. Thanks, I said. It is common for motherless girls to feel deficient in female knowledge that one's peers seem to acquire effortlessly from their moms. As Ag's daughter, I felt relief to have a mom shoring up this gap in my life, which she did quite effectively on many fronts. When I needed a dress for eighth grade graduation or later for high school dances, she took me shopping at the mall. We would peruse the racks and select a few skirts or dresses before heading to the dressing room. If a different size or color or additional options altogether were required, mom would run back and forth. Ever practical, she would also note multiple combinations that might be possible with my existing wardrobe. Standing at the counter while our purchases were rung up, often the saleswoman would observe sweetly, your daughter looks just like you. Then mom and I would exchange an amused glance and she would reply only, thanks. Fully inhabiting the new story now, I didn't mind these remarks. Sometimes such encounters even felt comforting. The same warm feeling of normal washed over me when she and I attended a mother-daughter event at school or baked cookies at Christmas or continued our holiday table-setting tradition. Before long, she had taught me how to express sympathy at a funeral visitation, when to send a thank you note and how to compose it, and during high school when an older cousin got married, how to host a bridal shower. She modeled for me how to welcome a new neighbor and to support someone who is ill with meals or rides to the doctor. She even explained the intricacies of family trees so that I could define once-removed cousins. In subtle but important ways, I carried the weight of not normal in relation to mom, too. I loved walking to school, to piano lessons, and to friends' houses, and I relished having the library an easy bike ride away. Such freedom cut two ways, though. When it was raining at 3 o'clock, mom never came to pick us up from school. Mark took his nap then, so that was that. We always had to get our own rides on those occasions, as well as to sports practices or social outings with friends. I took the city bus downtown to the dermatologist starting at age 12, and she never once made our school lunches. Inwardly, I felt myself to be so much older than my classmates, as though I were an adult going to elementary school. As Mark grew into a toddler, I looked forward to seeing him after school and often took him for walks in the stroller or played with him in the driveway, throwing balls or watching as he rode his little bike. It was so easy to embrace the new storyline with him, pure love right there in the moment, uncomplicated by wounds from a fractured past. When Mark was three, Dad bought his own business and began working much longer hours than before, including on weekends, which further bonded Mark, Mom, and me to a cozy trio, while Tim preferred to hang out with friends. As Mark grew, I regularly joined them for outings to state parks and historical sites and to the swim club. After I could drive, I took Mark on my own to play miniature golf or tennis. 
It evolved then that Mom and I chatted about Mark a great deal. I might share my anecdotes of him along with observations about his strengths or interests or needs, though much more commonly I listened as she related what his preschool teacher said or how his soccer game went or the part he would have in the upcoming show or who had invited him to play or how much taller he was than at last year's checkup. I would nod and interject appropriate supportive comments when needed. She and I were united in mutual doting, and the recipient of our devotion looked to both of us for nurturing and guidance. Particularly with Mark, being Ag's daughter became a variation on the role as responsible girl in the family. From the time Mark was an infant until my dad bought his business, Mom and Dad went out together on Saturday nights, so I cared for Mark in addition to handling dinner, then put Mark to bed before we made the popcorn. On Wednesdays after school, Mom required Tim and me to alternate watching Mark while she did the weekly grocery shopping. We also babysat him while she had her hair done or went to the doctor. I particularly resented the grocery duty after the comparative freedom of our latchkey days before my dad remarried. I wanted to do my own thing after school. In my mind, a normal mother would simply take her toddler with her to the store. Why didn't she? Was it just inconvenient? Did she want a break? Or did it spring from an impulse to control or a drive for efficiency that was intrinsic to her personality? I did not dwell on her possible reasons because Dad had tacitly handed her the reins to the household. We were expected to oblige her requests. I went on to attend a Catholic girls' high school where I studied hard, served on the student council, and forged friendships. Outwardly a successful teen, but always wrestling with the sense of feeling too grown up and wondering if others noticed that. After school one afternoon in the spring of my sophomore year, Mom knocked lightly before entering the room I shared with my sister, who continued to attend boarding school, and sat down on the end of Kate's twin bed with a small smile. Still wearing my black watch plaid uniform skirt and white blouse, I stood by my desk reviewing the evening's homework. She allowed a brief silence before speaking. I want to talk to you about something. You know that all my sisters have had breast cancer. I don't have it, but I'm getting closer to the ages they were when they were diagnosed with it. So this summer, I'm going to have a double mastectomy as a preventive measure. In her straightforward manner, she went on to explain how she'd have implants, but some tissue would remain because she'd keep her nipples, meaning a small chance of developing breast cancer would remain. But the risk would be much reduced if not fully eliminated. The surgery will be on June 12th, and I'll be in the hospital for about a week. I'd like you to take care of Mark. My body froze at such news, especially her concluding request. I'd like you to take care of Mark. I was a deer in the headlights as my mind raced, trying to formulate a response, aware that my hackles were rising even as my heart melted a little too. Without thinking, I blurted out, are you asking me or telling me? To my amazement, Mom retained her saccharine sweet, almost cajoling air in the face of this uncharacteristic resistance. You know his routine, and he's so comfortable with you. He loves you. There's no one who could take care of him as well. What about dinner? Will I have to do the cooking, too? I'll put meals in the freezer, and Dad can pick up some things. Also, Aunt Claire will take you guys to the pool a couple times. I was caught between the teenager who resented such a demand on my summer break and the inner adult who was so used to feeling capable and in control that she thrived on it. Both aspects of myself adored Mark. At three and a half, he was a peaceful child with a sense of humor and keen imagination that made him delightful company. The potential burdens and pleasures seesawed in my mind, even as I perceived this was not a choice. I did not ask what the alternative plan would be if I refused her request, nor did she offer one. She might have had other approaches in mind, but my stepping up as caregiver was clearly the easiest, most efficient plan for the household. That alone leveled the seesaw for the moment, and I accepted what seemed like destiny. All right, I'll do it. Thank you, she said warmly, her smile still sweet, but also now approving. I managed one in return, telling myself that this made sense, and the time with Mark would be fun. Standing in the front hall on the fourth day of the hospitalization, I caught Mark's sing-song voice crooning from his room at the top of the stairs, a telltale sign that nap time was over. I pushed open the door, expecting to see him sitting up in his twin bed, enacting a scene with his friends, the stuffed animals. Instead, suddenly enveloped by fragrance, I stopped short, stunned at the sight of Mark kneeling on the floor, surrounded by white stuff. Mark! 
I shrieked. His wide brown eyes looked up at me, suddenly guilty, as he returned to reality from whatever imaginary world he'd been in. My jaw dropped as I comprehended the extent and source of the mess. He had opened a tube of A&D ointment and dotted it around the entire room, including his bed, the carpet, the toy chest, and the play table. Then he had sprinkled baby powder all over these same surfaces. What have you done? I roared. Why did you do this? Didn't you go to sleep? How could you do this? Pointing to the door, I barked, go downstairs right now. Sorry, Peg, Mark said, tears filling his eyes. God damn it, I ranted as I pulled the sheets and comforter from the bed, taking care in my rage to keep the gunk inside the fabric. Leaving the pile outside the door, I stomped down the hall to retrieve the vacuum sweeper. My hands braced on either side of my head. My own tears fell as I stared at the scene again from the doorway, adrenaline receding, and my voice grew plaintive. Oh my God, what a mess. How could he do this? He never does stuff like this. I had spent the 90-minute nap time in the basement, reading and chilling out, never in my wildest dreams anticipating that he might not sleep. Now sobs came and I dropped to my knees, shoulders shaking. This was too hard. I was only 15 years old. How could anyone expect me to be almost solely responsible for this child for a whole week? I couldn't drive, so we were housebound unless someone came and picked us up. The day before, Mom's sister Claire had taken us to the swim club, but I didn't know how to turn off the responsibility faucet and be a kid, even though she had gladly tended Mark at the baby pool. Sniffing, I rubbed my cheeks and perceived from this lower vantage point that the baby powder minimized the ointment's impact. So I grabbed the wastebasket and began picking up the little clumps like sausage off a pizza. Then I was able to vacuum up the remaining baby powder without difficulty. It almost began to seem funny, but not quite. With the room now restored to normal, I sat on the floor, leaned against his dresser with knees up and head bowed, eyes closed, just breathing. Time to check on Mark, I realized with new alarm, wondering what he might have gotten into now. I gathered up the bedding and headed downstairs. Just outside the back door, I shook out the baby powder, creating misty puffs that blew toward the neighbor's house behind us. In the basement, Mark was playing with his Fisher-Price farm set, plopped on the floor, kneeling flat with his legs like a W, the same pose in which I had discovered him in the bedroom. He regarded me silently in sad reproach, his mouth turned down and his eyes dull. Sighing, I went around the corner, started the sheets in the washer, and returned to the family room. You know you should never, ever have done that, right? I said, towering over him. Mark nodded. I'm sorry I lost it. I was really upset. That mess made a lot of extra work for me. He nodded again, his usual glint beginning to resurface. Look, Peg, he said. Farmer Brown is milking the cows. Is he? That's good. It's chore time on the farm, I said. I sat down, encircling him with my arm and inhaling the baby shampoo scent of his hair. Calm was restored in that moment and for the remainder of the week, but a grudge at being asked to assume this role at all wedged itself in my gut like a rock, where it festered for months, feeding on my continued roster of responsibilities. One late fall afternoon following my piano lesson, my feet carried me toward Aunt Claire's house. She was the next oldest sister from Mom, had been widowed quite young, and raised her two daughters in a house just behind the parish school we attended. Her easygoing, accepting manner had always drawn me to her. On this day, she and her elder daughter, Melissa, a college student, were at home. I looked up to Melissa like an older sister. Gradually, the conversation spiraled beyond school happenings, and I found myself sharing how burdened I felt and broke down sobbing. Perhaps their soft eyes and listening ears breached my defenses. It was almost like being back at Grandma's. I had stopped by, unconsciously seeking a refuge, intuiting correctly that Aunt Clara could handle difficult comments about her younger sister. Like Grandma, she neither judged Ag nor denied my feelings. She patted my hand and made cooing noises of sympathy. Melissa was direct. I think you need to tell Aunt Ag how you feel, she said. Since it was near dinner time, she drove me home and accompanied me to the door. I was puffy-eyed and stifling from crying. Mom stood at the sink, prepping salad for dinner when we opened the back door. Her face hardened like a statue when she saw the two of us, and my insides quivered. 
Listen to her, Aunt Ag, Melissa said, squeezing my shoulder before returning to her car. I trembled as Mom turned steely eyes on me, and my words sounded a little breathless from nerves. I got to talking with Melissa and Aunt Claire, and uh, I don't know, I just realized how overwhelmed I feel sometimes. It's so much sometimes, with Mark, everything. She dried her hands on a towel and leaned back on the counter before responding. Things aren't easy for me either, she said. It's very hard on me that Dad is working so many evenings now. We have a lot less time together, and I have to do a more around here. My whole body froze as the moment became slow motion surreal. As if removed from the entire scene, hovering above it, I saw her mouth continuing to speak but did not comprehend her words. My throat slammed closed like a vault, but inside I screamed. Oh my God, that's it? All you can do is talk about yourself? Did minutes or only seconds pass until I re-inhabited my body, once more standing just inside the kitchen door to catch her saying, so dinner will be ready in 15 minutes. Then she moved to adjust the burner temperature under the skillet at the stove. Oh, okay, I replied tonelessly, picking up my school bag and trudging up the back steps, now with a complete understanding of my role as Ag's daughter. Oh, boy. Phew! I guess the thing that resonates with me is, you certainly heard me say before, is the emotional awareness through all of this. Um, I don't know. What What are your thoughts about that? Like, who who was responsible girl back then? I think that that, I can see certainly the hindsight that you have about that, but you certainly did have an awareness of it at the time. Um... I think... Or did you? I don't know. Maybe not. A lot of this is recollected, of course. Mm -hmm. I think it was all very internal. There was no letting it out. The the Mm -hmm. responsible girl was a facade that I felt I needed. I mean, it wasn't a conscious thought. It was a coping mechanism for sure. Like, I need to feel in control of my environment, so I'm going to step in and make things secure. Right. I think that's part of my personality. I think it's trauma response. But I could not have fully articulated as a teenager how I felt. I just knew I felt burdened. And sometimes little cracks would appear if I felt I was with someone who was safe. Mm. My grandma had been a safe person. And Ag's sister was a sa- relatively safe person. Mm-hmm. And even the line that you, when you say cracks, well, cracks, I was thinking there's cracks, like cracks in your facade where you let some of that emotion out. You also had a bit of a crack, I think, when you were saying to Ag, are you asking or telling me about taking care of Mark? Right, right. So you faced her for that. Right. But I think she had an agenda to make this happen. And so ultimately I cooperated. Oh, I cooperated yeah. with the agenda. That was my ultimate yeah. tendency. Yes. Well, and with the adoption too. Yes. Yes. Very much. What it what is your hindsight about that now? Because I, I know what you mean when we think about where we were as kids and it's you know that the reaction is in there somewhere but you it doesn't quite make it to the surface and I think in terms of my own reaction or what was the adults were thinking no I think your own reaction I could not possibly have countered I could not possibly have resisted that there was no possible way in fact there's a scene later in the book when my brother Tim and I are working on cleaning out my parents' house after they're both dead that we recollected and we he said right away there was absolutely no choice that was, it, there was no way to say no and it made me feel like I needed to be reminded of that even mm. as an adult there was no way to say no we were kids and this was a decision they had made and I th- actually I think some of it was certainly well intended and some of the problems with the adoption laws I mean step parent right. adoption I mean all adoption is is problematic in many ways around these kinds of things. I mean, there are whole memoirs written by people who were adopted who have searched mm-hmm. for their identity. So yeah. it's, it's a complicated thing for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, 
when I was reading your book, you know, I was certainly aware of your story of losing your mom and your emotional awareness after that, but it was really this character of your stepmom who was so present throughout your life that surprised me a little bit, I guess. I don't know why it did, maybe because you didn't hadn't talked about her that much or something, but what, what was her impact on your life overall? Because she's a very interesting character. She is, and she's a complicated character, and her, mm-hmm. her impact on me is complicated. I'm glad you asked this because I've been thinking about it recently. Um, she really did some good things for me. She did. The way I live my mm-hmm. life, the things that I do with other people, the way I run my home, and just the confidence I feel in certain ways around you know, sort of traditionally female things like entertaining and um, domestic things, let's call it, that sort of feminine, female etiquette yeah. stuff. Yeah. Maybe because I did lose my mom, I was extra conscious of taking it all in. You know, it was important to me to be proper or you know I think some of that's my personality too paying attention the other thing that I've only recently fully really come to realize is one of the best things probably the best thing she did for me was educate me about death Mm -hmm. her oldest sister died I was in high school when her oldest sister died of breast cancer and that was the first funeral I had been to since my own mom's eight years earlier Mm -hmm. and in her detailed, matter-of-fact, educating kind of way, she explained what was going to happen at this funeral home. She told us what to say to our uncle. She kind of laid it out. It was just how she mm-hmm. was. She was always sort of speaking, you know. It was natural for mm-hmm. her to recount things and narrate things. Yeah. And so, okay, I took that in. And then other things came up, and I had to write a sympathy note to somebody or whatever. So she taught me all those things. And then later, when I became a mom and, you know, grappling with my own history of loss as a child, I then passed that on to my children. It was very important to me that my children know what happens when someone dies, that to know that death can happen, to have mm. have been exposed to the rituals of death so that it, it was not going to be foreign to them if something major happened in our family. So I I have, it's kind of ironic in a way, because she and my dad, by other decisions and actions that they took, they harmed me. I mean, they caused me to lose my Mm. mom twice, in a sense, because she died, and she was gone. And then after my, particularly after my dad remarried, it was very much, you know, we're embarking on this new life now. The past is in the past. And then none of this was said overtly. But, you know, we moved to a new house, we adopted her relatives as our primary affiliation, and it was full steam ahead. And Mm -hmm. there was never a deliberate, overt suppression of my mother, but there was no conscious remembering of her either. And so that, on top of the lack of emotional expression around the event of the death, it just really was harmful. I mean, it really just created a lot of extra layers for me to get through as an adult. Mm -hmm. It demonstrates so starkly how that whole impetus to just move forward and be a quote-unquote normal family. I I mean, I see the benevolence of the intention, like we will all look normal now and you'll call me mom. And she gives you these gifts of Um, I don't know, the term like savoir-faire comes to mind of how to make your way in the world by doing all these surface things, but yet the insides of everything were just not there. And let it be said, I really do think my dad, That I mean, Mm -hmm. by my dad's standards, you know, if we were housed and fed and clothed, that was a success. You know, I mean, that there was not, yeah. it wasn't like he was tending to his own emotional health and neglecting his children. He really, right. he was a child of the depression. And so, yeah. you know, those, those practicalities were front right. and center for him. Yeah. And so I think he deliberately sought remarriage. And I think in part it was to have a 
someone to help him raise his children. Yeah, yeah. Was he warm? Was he a warm person? Or was he just much more practically oriented? Um, My dad was very Irish looking. So Mm -hmm. he had, you know, a ruddy complexion and his hair got very silver as he Mm. aged and had curl. It was wavy. And he had very twinkly eyes and he had a very well-developed sense of humor he loved to kid around and tease and mm-hmm. but he was not um he could also he also had a temper he he was a um i think he was a wounded person in his own right i don't know exactly what happened in his childhood but i have to think that he went through some hard times i'm not sure what he wasn't a very good student in some ways so he had these kind of dual aspects I mean, mm. he was a very solid man. He was a very dutiful, responsible man who really, given the, the personal resources that he had, he really gave it his all. Being, I mean, as a single father, I even, I even said this in the book, he was probably among the least suited of his generation to be a single father. But mm. he put his nose to the grindstone and and did it. I have a lot of admiration for my dad in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And I have right. a lot of, I have, what what word should I use? Anger or, it's not really anger at this point. It's, it's much more objective now. I mean, he's been mm. gone for not eight years. And, you know, I've done all this writing and created this whole narrative about what happened. And I, I look at it, and even Ag, I don't, I do not have a fiery feeling toward her. I feel Maybe, I don't know if objective is the right word, but some sort of clarity about this was good and this was not. And both are true. I mean, both are true. It's not that one cancels the other. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my present thinking, I guess. Well, it's, I will say, I think that that comes across really well. And I enjoyed seeing it through reading the book, the objectivity. I, I mean... You write much more about Ag than about your dad in the book. I will leave it to listeners to discover more of what happens, and it is completely worth it to check it out. The adoption question, I guess, another thing that I thought about that, because I did really want you to read that one chapter. So why why do you think she wanted to adopt you? This might be kind of like an obvious thing. And have your thoughts changed about that as you've had your own children? Um, I think it was a joint decision mm-hmm. between my dad and Ag. And I think it was sort of covering all the bases kind of thing. I think my dad, I think my dad always had a will. I think he always had a, you know, a, mm. a child care plan you know if something had happened to him when he was a single father he was sort of hyper vigilant in his own way and so I think this was in that sense protecting against the unexpected because the unexpected had already happened you know he lost his life at 37 and I think he probably really wanted Ag to have that surgery because Mm. she's the youngest of six kids three sisters and I mean their family has the breast cancer gene she was going to get it I mean it actually that's funny you say that now but that didn't quite hit me as specifically as you just saying this because yeah you had already lost your mother to breast cancer your father had lost one wife to breast cancer so I can see now how it's much more of a logistical decision in spite of that really emotional and, you know, like Mm -hmm. you say, it's an issue with the adoption process, but to take your mother's name off your birth certificate, that just seems wrong. I know. I also think, I don't know a whole lot about the dynamics between my dad and my real mom's family. Mm. I think he just wanted things to be clean. If something happened to him, he wanted it to be a done deal, it was going to stay this way. The family was going to mm-hmm. stay together. And, and it, you know, in that sense, yeah, it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad right, thing. Right, right. Yeah, I was going to say he was responsible dad. If, he, if yes. you were a responsible girl, he was responsible dad. And he taught that to you. Yes. Um, and passed that along. And, then, and my husband and I made a will when our kids yeah. were very young. We always yeah. had that in place. Yeah. You're now responsible woman. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but you are also feeling woman. So that is the the part that you have earned through all the little earthquakes that have happened along yes, the way. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it gets it's over time it gets easier. Like things don't rattle me to the extent, you know, 
mm-hmm. emotion doesn't overwhelm me as much as it used to. Like if something happens, like, oh, the wave comes, but I know it's going to recede. I'm not worried that it's going to, yeah. you know, paralyze me forever or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. No, that's so valuable. I think in any kind of emotional overwhelm to say, okay, I'm in the middle of it right now, but I won't always feel this same way. Mm-hmm. I think it's partly just being a little older too, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit of life experience yeah. and perspective. <laughs> and that's a good thing. Yes, you know? absolutely. I, which, you know, I'm 21 years older than my mom ever got to be. Mm-hmm. And so I don't take those years for granted. Right, right. Well, I've heard that, yeah, from many, many motherless daughters. And maybe you were the one that told, but uh, other people I've heard from in that same capacity. It's like you reach that age where your mother either didn't live beyond or did X, Y, or Z other things. And then you realize, oh, this is happening and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. That's well, right. Okay, so my final question, you know what is coming. What is daring about this book, Peg? Well, it's daring for me to share all of this to, in one place out loud for any person to, to know. I mean, yeah. my, it's still not um, common in my family to talk about all these things. Right. And after so many years to put it all out there, that this is, it's interesting. People that I knew in um, like high school, I've been to a couple reunions in the last few years and they've seen some of my writing or my posts on social media and people have reached out to me like, wondering how I was then and you're like oh I'm so sorry I didn't know you were going through all this and my response is I didn't know I was going through mm. all this it was yeah. all kind of latent right. waiting and right. so now I'm kind of outing myself as hey I'm a person I may have looked really together but I really was quite in disarray there was a lot going on that even I didn't know about well, I I know many will benefit from reading your words. So congratulations on writing it, living it, getting it out there, on having the book. It's really, yay. Well, thank you so much. It's I'm so grateful to you for creating oh. this, this venue, this space of telling. I, the word I it. tell is so mm-hmm. important to me. I, it, oh. it, it's, it has a an oomph, a ping to it beyond like sharing, you know, mm-hmm. or presenting yeah. or reading. Yep. Tell. I don't know. It, yep. it, maybe it's so declarative as a one syllable. Well, thank you. I I love that. I appreciate it. And yeah, it's, uh, we're telling it. We're telling it. So I know that you have a book group and also maybe you want to tell folks how they can get in touch with you if they're interested in joining a book group or reading more or what what are the ways people can find out more about you in the book you can go to pegconway.com which is my website the book is out as of november 9th and it is available wherever books are sold whether it's online platforms like amazon or barnes and noble or through independent bookstores in your community and if you'd like to follow me on social media, my Facebook is Peg Conway, and my Instagram is at pegmorse.conway, which is also on my website. Are you accepting new members in your book group? Oh, is that- I, forgot to talk, I forgot to talk about the book club. I, a year ago, I started a book discussion group for adults bereaved as children. So most people have lost mothers. Some have lost fathers. And we meet monthly, and we read a book that relates to loss or early loss in some way. We've read novels, we've read nonfiction works, we read a graphic memoir, we've had a few author visits for the selection, and people are welcome to join anytime. You can sign up for that at my website, pegconway.com, and people pop in and out. It's, it's a pretty fluid program, and it's actually evolved into a really nice kind of community. Well, that sounds great. I love that, and I don't know if I should dare to even say I'm thinking about a daring to tell book club, but I haven't gotten my head wrapped around it just yet. So stand by on that one, anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but um, thank you again. It's great as always to connect with you. And thank you for this book and for sharing some of it with us and for daring to tell. 
Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for the opportunity. It's always great to speak with you. George Harrison wrote a song for John Lennon after he was killed. All those years ago. Remember that one? John and George had a huge stretch of time after the Beatles where they barely talked. There was post-band anger resentments and then John was shot dead at 40. The year he was supposing that life might actually really begin. Yet I don't think George could have said the words that he wrote to his friend and bandmate when John was still alive. What do we say to our loved ones while they are here with us? Are there truly words that can't be spoken until after they're gone? George Harrison and Peg Conway leave me to ponder this question today. That song also amazes me because if you don't know it and you're even mildly inclined, I urge you to go check it out. The music is upbeat and happy, yet the words are so nostalgic. It's such a beautiful ode to one of the three other people on the face of the earth that together experienced as many extreme emotions that may be possible, the highest highs and some incredibly deep and dark lows. And it ended up coming out in the music that personally I deem to be one of the greatest gifts to the universe. But that's me. And after all, my name is Michelle, named after a Beatles song like the dozen other Michelles in my high school class. There were really, really popular cheerleaders, and they were named Michelle. And there were smart Michelles, and there were shy, quiet Michelles, and plump, unpopular Michelles, uh, namely me. I was searching for a connection through the name, but the common denominator really was only the name itself, and I suppose in hindsight, the small little place that we came from in southern Worcester County of Massachusetts. Anyway, that is a digression. Hopefully, you found some connections through this story today. If you're interested in reading Peg Conway's book, The Art of Reassembly, visit her website, pegconway.com. Maybe you want to check out her book group, too, for adults bereaved as children. She has that group on Facebook. And here is a question for you. Who is your favorite beetle and why? Email me your answer. I'm Michelle at michellerado.com. There is a link at my website to either email me or also to subscribe to my newsletter, which is called Hit Pause. This month's Daring to Tell theme music, Nothing Like That, was written by my husband, Phil Rado. You can hear more of his music at philrado.bandcamp.com. And as always, thank you for daring to listen. Cuckoo, kajoob.